God sent his only son, that we might live in and through him. But whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did, passing from death to life as we love one another, not being led astray, but remaining in his light, where there is no darkness at all. For the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So let us love one another without fear, for perfect love drives out fear. And if we love one another, God's love is made complete in us. Believe in the name of his Son and love one another. Dear children, let us not only love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. In the early 90s, yes, 1990s, uh, Gatorade launched a commercial ad campaign uh, centered around NBA legend Michael Jordan. And the campaign was simple, be like Mike. Uh, the commercials would see all these kids playing basketball on a court with Michael Jordan. And the message was simple, practice, drink Gatorade, and someday you too can be like Michael Jordan. Of course, you know, it was impossible to be Michael Jordan, but with diligent practice, you could sure be like him. The same is true in our faith journey. We won't ever be Jesus. In fact, it'd be irresponsible and impossible to think so. But we are called to be like him. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 reminds us we are to be imitators of God as his beloved children. So if we are truly children of God, then it should show in our likeness to our Father. And it's that principal idea that will be conveyed today by John as we continue in our First John series, Go in Love, Be a Light. Before we get going, let me just say hi to you here in the building, to those at our community sites, at Gym Church in Belize, to our online campus, and a special shout out to our Skagit campus, because moments ago, they baptized four young men, three from Explorers League and one from Encounter, Gunner, Brody, Ryder, and Steven. Can we hear it for them? Come on! So awesome. We're celebrating with you guys today. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app and you want to follow along, head to the end of chapter 2 of 1 John, and we're going to make our way into the beginning of chapter 3. John begins, as he has so many times before, dear children. And as Pastor Bob and Pastor Kip have already mentioned, his reference to them as children or his children or dear children, this is not him being condescending. It's actually the opposite. It's an affirmation of his real affection, devotion, intentionality of his value of them, of him wanting to see them spiritually grow in their faith. And so he begins, and now, dear children, remain, or your version might say abide, in him. We've seen this idea throughout the letter, throughout the Bible. The call to remain is a critical command, meaning to remain is to stay close, to be near, to be in proximity for a duration of time. 
Now, our family got a lesson in abiding back in 2010. Uh, my wife, my parents, and I, along with our three-year-old daughter, Alyssa, were on a cruise back in 2010, and it was an incredible vacation. It was a great cruise until the last night. We had just finished up dinner, and we were leaving the dining room on the way to the elevators to get changed for the rest of the night. Remember, Alyssa's three years old. That'll be important in just a moment. As we're standing there with others that had just finished up their dinner, waiting for an elevator, where they're patiently waiting. Well, Shauna, myself, my parents were patiently waiting. My daughter, Alyssa, apparently had had enough with the waiting. And as a nearby elevator door would open, my daughter, my three-year-old, would just walk right onto the elevator with other people. And kind of like a movie in slow motion, she's standing there, we're eye to eye, and the doors begin to close, and I do a slow motion like, no, and then the doors shut. So I'm thinking to myself, my three-year-old, strangers, 4,000 people on a cruise ship, what could possibly go wrong right now? And disbelief instantly turned into panic. I paused just long enough to look at the elevator to see, was it going up or down? And then I took off running. Realizing it was going up, I took to the staircase, and it took two flights of stairs for every floor. So I took two flights, would come around the corner, elevator hadn't stopped. Take two more flights, come around the corner, elevator hadn't stopped. One floor, two floors, three floors, four floors, powered by adrenaline, sweating like a pig, thinking I'm going to puke up my dinner. On the fifth floor, or ten flights later, the elevator stops, the doors open, and my three-year-old daughter walks off nonchalantly like nothing had even happened. Needless to say, we wanted Alyssa glued to our side for a time after that. It was in her best interest to abide with us, to remain next to us. Because the truth is, left on our own, we wander we get impatient. It's why I, as a parent, had to say to Alyssa, Alyssa, dear Alyssa, abide with your dad. It's why John had to say, dear children, abide in him. They knew this, but he knew they needed a reminder. You know, when we sing the song, Abide in Me, we're simply asking the Lord to stay with us through life circumstances, to be a constant for us. But why? John continues with the why. He says, dear children, remain in him so that. So that what? When he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. The idea here, the Greek word John uses is parousia. Now, for the record, no, I did not geek out and Greek out. I simply Googled it to impress you. But the word Regardless, it's parousia. It's this idea used to describe the preparation for someone of high rank of the time. It would have been preparing for the, the arrival of a king or an emperor. It's speaking to the preparation of someone of distinction. There is no reason why someone should fear Christ's return if they are abiding in Christ. John had a vision for Christ returning. In fact, soon after writing this letter, God would show John a vision of what was to come. Read it on your own, Revelation 19. 
You see, abiding in Jesus means we, not, we don't have to be afraid or ashamed when Jesus returns because we have been intimately abiding with him. And in that, we can have great confidence. Now, here John paints for us a challenging image. When Jesus returns, some people will be afraid because they never knew Jesus at all. But of those that say they did know him, some will not be afraid. They'll be excited. They'll be elated. They'll be like, let's go. But of those that say they knew Jesus, some will be ashamed at his return. They'll realize they had lived unfruitful lives. They had lived according to the world's standards. Gary Derrickson, professor of biblical studies at Corbin University, says this. He, John, is not warning about losing one's salvation. Rather, he's describing the emotional response a believer will have when brought before Christ at his return. He continues, every believer, including John, will have one of two responses to Jesus when they stand in his presence for the first time. The believer either will be comfortable in his presence or will be looking for somewhere to hide. So John offers a call for us for closeness, confidence, and commitment. He calls us to be close, confident, and committed. First, to remain close, to abide in, to remain in, to keep the faith, to continue pursuing Christ and following after his call for our lives. If we're in Jesus, if we abide with him, if we keep that close proximity, we have a certain confidence that goes along with that. But second is to remain confident and committed to keep running the race, to keep racing diligently toward that finish line, believing that this race that's been set out is just for us, that our racing matters and that our coach is worth following. You see, confidence is the idea of knowing something will turn out. Confidence is a matter of trusting in something, or in this case, someone. John says if we remain in Jesus, we will have that confidence when Christ returns again. And I love how John uses the word we. It's we, not you, because he too needed the reminder of this confidence. He's reminding the church then and the church today. Maybe you have found yourself at work kind of zoning out, uh, texting on your phone or filling your Amazon cart and then out of nowhere, you hear the voice of your boss just around the corner, and suddenly you blitz into work mode, and you ditch your phone, and you open some random Excel spreadsheet and move your mouse around to look like you're working. Now, if you were doing what you were supposed to be doing, particularly if you were doing it well, there would be a great confidence that comes with that reality. But if you're goofing off or causing problems, texting on your phone, working on today's Wordle, you could end up ashamed of the conduct in front of your boss, perhaps even nervous about what could happen. You see, no one wants to get caught not working. And that's exactly what John is saying to us. Your boss is just around the corner. So stay alert, stay awake, stay diligent, be prepared. Keep your eyes focused as we wait, as we anticipate his coming. Christ's return should be a motivation for us. It's not about whether he'll return. It's about when he'll return. 
So with that firm belief that Jesus is on his way back, John urged us to live lives with confidence and commitment over shame at his coming. Nate Holdridge would say this, the thing that will give us confidence on the day our king returns is a history of abiding in him. So are you ready for the return of Jesus? In college, I I read this book. It's still on my bookshelf. It's by Donald Whitney and it's called 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health. It is a real (laughs) eye-opener. One of the chapters is titled, Do I Yearn for Heaven and to Be with Jesus? At the end of the chapter, you actually get to answer that question. Spurgeon would say it this way, if you abide in the faith of him, you hold to his truth, you follow his example, and you make him your dwelling place, the Lord can come at any hour and you can welcome him. So John's argument is simply this, be confident that he's coming back, just as he said, be bold, not ashamed, live in courage, not guilt, and have assurance, not doubt. But closer than a boss or a coach, John reminds us of this as he continues. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Now, some versions might say everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Basically, this is the church way of saying being born again. And when that happens, something changes in us, in the life of a believer. You move from a disposition of sin to a disposition of righteousness. Now, yes, it is possible someone could live an unauthentic faith if they claim to be born of him, but don't practice righteousness. John says, abide in him in a way that you can practice righteousness. In other words, walk with Jesus so you can be more like Jesus. And then John continues, he says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. All right, should be, those two words. Put a mental placeholder there. John's going to circle back in a moment in a pretty significant way. Moving on. We have this confidence from earlier in who we are. We're children of God. It's all pieces together, right? The more we remain in him, abide in him, that gives us a confidence, a confidence of what? That we are children of God. We are so important to God, our Father, that he has lavished us with love and adopted us into his family. I mean, John here in this letter, he's so moved by the love of God, he uses the word lavish. Now, we have the capacity to love. God has the capacity to lavish with love. Now, lavish is a pretty unique word. It's a church word, admittedly. Likely, you're not using the word lavish in your common conversation. You know, thank you for lavishing me with this great dinner, or thanks for lavishing me with the birthday greetings on Facebook, or great job washing the car, Timmy. You must have really lavished it with soap. You know, God is the only one who can lavish us. And here, we're reminded that it's God who lavished us with love, specifically for his kids, the children of God. I mean, consider this fact. God could have pitied us. God could have made us work for his love or earn it. But instead, the word is he lavished us with love that came down freely given him to us. 
Stuart Townend captured this idea when he would write the song, How Great the Father's Love for Us. The first verse says this, How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure, to make a wretch a child of God. It's so important that John feels the need to reiterate this fact as if to say, guys, did you hear this? God lavished us with love. We are children of God. That's who we are. We have this assured belonging or status in the family of God. And how do we know? The Bible tells us so. The Trinity tells us so. In 2 Corinthians 6.18, it says, I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord. In Hebrews 2.11, he, Jesus, will not be ashamed to call them brethren. In Romans 8.16, the Holy Spirit himself will bear witness that we are children of God. I'm going to pull a kipism here. If you get nothing else out of this message, get this. Regardless of your past and the chapters that have been written about you and the baggage that you bring, if you are in a relationship with Jesus, make no mistake, you are a child of God, holy and loved. And while this is an incredible news, this is undeserving, this is unmatchable, it's not well received by everybody. John was sure to mention the other side of becoming a child of God. He goes on. He says, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. It's important to understand what he means here when he's talking to and about the children of God, that not everyone is a child of God in the sense here. God's children have to recognize that we are incompatible with this world. We are renters, not homeowners. We've chosen to lease, not buy. Brent Kirchfield would say this way, the world will never understand us because the world does not know God. We're going to practice righteousness and worship and it will confuse the world. This is why the approval of the world cannot be our desire. This is why we cannot love the world or things of the world. The way of the world is incompatible with the way of God. The love of God changed our lives and the world doesn't understand it. He says this, they will not understand who we are. They will not understand the way we act until they know God. John 1.12 says this, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe his name. Here he's speaking to those that have received the love of Jesus and are in a lifelong relationship with him. This father-child relationship, God and believers. It's that tension that God created the world, but the whole world doesn't love him back. John's making this same argument. The world collectively may know about God. They might know about Jesus. They may know something about salvation, heaven, hell, but the world on the whole does not know God inherently, and therefore the world on the whole is not automatically part of the family of God. In the span of one verse, it's so interesting, he's he's offered two different opposite spectrums 
those that are dearly loved and counted as part of the children of God and those apart from Christ that do not know who he is. Pastor David Guzik puts it this way, because of our unique parentage from God, we are strangers to this world or ought to be. In other words, the world does not know us because the world does not know or did not know him. And so we can even expect the same treatment, rejection, opposition, mockery. Man, this is heavy stuff. What a turn. I almost think John knew that this was heavy, real-time truth. So much so that he continues with this boost of confidence. He, he returns to this, this affirmation, dear friends... As if to say, I know that was heavy, but guys, listen up. Now we are children of God. He assures us now we are children of God. Remember that mental placeholder I asked you to hold on to a moment ago? You see, in verse 29, John says we should be called children of God, and now we are children of God. And should and are are significantly different. One speaks to intention and one speaks to action. We have some, some friends that intimately know this idea and the difference between the two. After having two boys on their own, they felt a very strong calling from God to become foster parents. And choosing to always say yes, they would have foster kids in their home at all times of the day, in all sorts of conditions, in all sorts of stages and ages. But what happened next would surprise nobody. Family and friends and strangers they would meet would all say the same thing. You know, those kids really should be part of your family. And discontent with should, they took action. And today, Joy and Irie, twin girls, Elijah with Down syndrome, Jada, who was 18 at the time, Josiah and Judah are now able to say they are part of that family. You see, for those kids, their adoption into this family brought instant benefit. Chief among them, love and security and joy and safety, for us, our adoption into God's family instantly brought great benefits, chief among them, salvation, eternal love, hope, uh, care, guidance, and a promise of what's to come. You see, John's contrast here is an encouragement more than should be. You are, you are part of the family of God. The world might not know God. The world might not have a relationship with him, but you do. And it's our present standing. It's happening right now. He says, dear friends, we are children of God. And he continues, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he he is righteous. You see, we don't get all the details. I suspect it's because our finite brain couldn't handle all the details. But we have two promises here. One, that we are children of God. And two, that we're going to get to see him just as he is when he returns. I mean, this side of heaven, we can't even comprehend what glory and eternity will be like. 
We can imagine, right? I mean, walking down the streets of gold and, and entering through the pearly gates, seeing the angels at the, the, the throne of God, the amazing worship that'll happen, standing in unparalleled beauty, reconnecting with those that have gone on before us, sitting with the heroes of the Bible. And Pastor Bob, imagine Pastor Bob preaching without a time limit. It's going to be incredible. Now, we don't know in what kind of detail what we'd like to know of what's to come. But here's what we do know. One, when Christ returns, we're going to get a front row seat. No nosebleed seats for us. We're going to see him in all his glory exactly as he is. Colossians 3, 4 reminds us when Christ, who is your life, appears, we will have an unfiltered, unrestricted view in the presence of our Lord. And then two, as we abide and remain with him, we're going to become more like him. I mean, believers can never be equal to Christ. We cannot share in his deity, but we can share in his likeness. And this is more than a be like Mike campaign and more than a what would Jesus do? We shall be like him. Share in his likeness. This reminds us that even though we grow in the image of God, in the image of Jesus, we still have a long way to go. I can't see the finish line yet. In fact, none of us will be finished until we see Jesus. That's when we will be like him. John's communicating something pretty straightforward here. If you know whose you are, child of God, then know who you'll become, like Christ. Then John continues. He makes an if-then statement. If... If you believe you're a child of God, then, then here's how you should act. Now, before we even get to this passage, let me just ask you, buckle up. Let me read the entire thing, and then we'll deconstruct it, because some eyebrows will raise. So let me just read the entire thing first. It says this, everyone who sins breaks the law. Got it. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Check. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. Got it. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Whoa. John is leaning in here to what they know. He's appealing to them of the things they already know. Like, you know what is sin. You, you know who rejoices in sin. You know that sin is lawlessness. And you know that lawlessness is a disregard for the law. And you know that that's a disregard for the lawmaker, God. And you know that Jesus came to cover sin. And you know that you're a child of God. And you know that as a Christ-following child of God, you'll never sin again. Wait, what? That's, is that what he's saying? There's a lot here. And so it's really important we understand what it is he's exactly saying. John here is making an appeal to make a contrast between righteousness and unrighteousness, between sinning and doing what's right, between following God and following the devil. He's pointing out the incompatibility of someone who follows Jesus and follows the way of sin. John's made it clear that Christians will sin. It'd be wrong for us to say we are free of sin, and it'd be inaccurate to say that we've matured past sin. Instead, we should admit our sin, 
We should confess it. We let God's light shine into it. We, we let him do that. He's faithful to forgive our sins. Remember this from Pastor Bob's message several weeks ago when he would quote earlier in the chapter, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if, if anyone sins, he writes, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. What he's telling us here is he's urging them to live in such a way that you may not sin. Make sure and catch that. Don't misunderstand. Everyone sins. Everyone's guilty of lawlessness. Everyone who sins is a sinner and breaking law, God's laws and commands for that moment. He's, he's saying to the heretics of the time, we, this is not trivial. We get it. This is serious. It is lawlessness, pure and simple. It demonstrates that in that, that moment, you refuse to obey Jesus in his calling and command over your life. He's also saying only Jesus can affect sin in the life of a Christian. You know this. Jesus came, lived, and died to cover the penalty of our sin. And through the work of Jesus in your life, the power of sin diminishes in you. Through the work of Jesus Christ in your life as a Christ follower, the power of sin diminishes over time. It's an ongoing work. Okay, hang on. Ongoing work. John just said, no one who lives in him keeps sinning. One could read this passage and assume John's saying, believers will never sin. Or since sin is lawlessness and Jesus came to take away our sin, and since in Jesus there is no sin, those who abide in him, I mean, you, you could go down a million rabbit trails. So again, hear what he is saying. Earlier in the letter, John was speaking to occasional acts of sin. Hear what he's indicating is the settled, continued lifestyle of sin. He's not conveying the possibility of sinless perfection. Spoiler alert, not possible. What he's talking about here is this ongoing chosen life of sin. Paul's teaching in Romans 6 is a great example of, of this principle. He shows us that when a person comes to Christ... Sins are forgiven. God's grace is extended. They are radically changed. The old is gone. The new has come. A new lifestyle in Christ, in faith, begins. So when you whittle it down, it's really about a way of life, not an action. It's about a way of life, not an action. John is not suggesting that the children of God will never commit a sin again. Instead, what he's asking, compelling them and you and me, is a different way of life. In other words, the believer will not have a life characterized by sin. Daniel Aiken says it this way, the believer may fall into sin, but they will not walk into it. You see, if, if we claim to know Jesus, if we claim to be abiding in him, then we need to be careful and resist sin and seek out and practice righteousness. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be alert and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, waiting and seeking someone to devour. We've got to be alert. 
We've got to be watchful. We've got to be on guard because Satan is smart and makes temptation and sinning look really good. In 1968, a movie came out starring Dick Van Dyke. Now, warning, I'm not going to say the title of the movie because inevitably someone will mishear the title and it will be my last day at Cornwall Church. But it's a great movie. It's a family movie and it stars Dick Van Dyke. And it's this great movie where Dick Van Dyke uh, has two kids and they end up in this village, in this town that's run by a baron and a baroness. And the baron and baroness hate children, so much so it's forbidden to have children around. And this is more than that. They've hired a child catcher to capture any kids and put them into the kingdom's dungeon. I actually have a picture of the child catcher from the movie. Take a look. I know, right? It's like, like, So at one point in the movie, um, the two uh, children, uh, Jeremy and Jemima, they are hidden in the basement uh, in the town. The baron and baroness get wind that they are hiding somewhere in the village, and so they send out the child catcher to find them. Now, of course, if he was dressed all in black and looked scary and ominous, they wouldn't come out. So he decorates himself as this candy man, and he starts walking through the village and offering free ice cream and and tasty treats and and all these delicious things. And, And Jeremy and Jemima are just tempted. They start peeking out the window, and the townspeople say, don't go out, he'll get you. They're like, yeah, we shouldn't go out, but we want to, but we shouldn't. And they're tempted because this child catcher looks very alluring. You see, this is the challenge. We don't have to live in habitual sin. We don't have, oh, you want to know what happened? Yeah, Jeremy and Jemima totally fell in. There they they are in the back of the, you know, he looks like he drops the, the, the garb and, well, they get shuttled off to the dungeon. It's evidence that it is really easy to fall into temptation and sin. It's not as easy when we don't live in habitual sin, like that's our lifestyle. It's a daily choice. Will I give in today? Not if I am alert, not if I'm watchful, not if I'm on guard, even though Satan makes it really, really easy. The great thing is we know as Christ followers that we can resist the devil. James 4, 7 says, I love this, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Like there's no gray area on that. Resist the devil, he has no choice. He's got to skedaddle. It's not about a sin here. He's talking about a way of life in which you choose, ongoing choosing intentionally not to sin, not to fall into sin. If our hope is to become like Christ, may our motivation in the present be to live differently. We should want to become now what we will become in the future. We will not perfect righteousness in this life, but we can certainly practice. The bar is high, and that's okay. But God's grace makes the impossible possible. So I'm going to leave you with two questions that can turn into two thoughts for consideration. Number one, as a child of God, are you abiding in him? As a child of God, do you find yourself abiding in him? Like the elevator doors have opened and he's like, come on over, hang next to me, abide near me. Are you doing that? 
You know, Paul in Ephesians 3.17 calls us to, uh, that Christ can dwell in our hearts. In the Bible, there's two different forms of dwell. One's that's like a passerby, and one is a permanent residency. That's what we're talking about here. Can you find a permanent residency abiding with God? Are you active in your faith or are you phoning it in? Do you abide in him or is it every once in a while? I'll tell you, when you abide in Christ, you will find a great confidence in him. Write it down. Write down what abiding in God might look like for you and then do it. Like here are some ideas. And I don't know what's going to be right for you, but you've got reading the Bible more, spending time in prayer, uh, finding a devotion, taking care of your soul, cutting out sinful influences in your life, joining a small group, getting in a quad, finding someone to share your faith with. How is it you can better abide in Christ? And when you abide in him, you choose a closeness in him and the product will be a confidence in him. That's one. Number two, is your way of life reflective, reflective of your relationship with Jesus? Is your way of life reflective of your relationship with Jesus? In other words, when you pick up and leave this room or online when you shut off the TV or close the laptop, does your relationship with Christ reflect him? You know, we practice what we're good at, right? Like the greatest athletes in the world practice to improve in their sport. The greatest musicians of the world practice to get better with their instrument. What we practice, we get better at. So practice doing what you want, when you want, uh, disregard for sin or its consequences, pff, you're going to get really good at that. But practice in abiding in God, finding that closeness, following his command, leaning into his calling, striving to avoid sin when you can, you'll get better at that. 1 Peter 2.21 reminds us that Christ intentionally left us an example, a blueprint, so that we might follow in his steps. You see, if we are truly children of God, we've got to show a likeness to our Father. We should strive to be like Jesus and reflect him in what we say and what we do. But here's the sobering truth. Our God is is a God that will let you do whatever you want to do. So if you want to be like Jesus, it'll show in your life. And if you don't want to be like Jesus, it'll show in your life. Mike Holmgren, uh, former coach of the Seahawks, uh, once said to Matt Hasselbeck, he pulled him aside and said, I got a couple questions for you. Matt said, what? He said, question one, are you our quarterback? He said, yes. He said, are you our captain? He said, yes. He said, then start acting like it. You see, go in love, be a light is more than just a catchy series title. It is a way of life that we must choose. It's a heart posture. It's actions we've got to take. It's, it's how we exhibit ourselves before others. It's ultimately how we follow Jesus. So may we have a great confidence that Jesus is on the way. His return is inevitable. May we be ready for that return. And may we consider this 
closing thought, a loving encouragement. Hey, you, if you are a child of God, you got to start acting like it.